Yes, so we are, uh, we're starting a new series today, as, as Nicholas said, called Battle Ready. And so as part of that, we're going to be reading that scripture out loud together a lot in the next few weeks and across this term. We're going to be doing that because I think it's just a really important thing for us at any time, but right now, to really get into our minds and to get into our hearts, into our spirit, what that scripture is actually telling us. Because it's, it's dynamite, that scripture. And um, I actually spoke back in September um, on, on the need to stand firm in the spiritual battle. And from the, at that time, I talked about um, seeing the greatest spiritual reality. So it was Elisha's servant who saw, suddenly his eyes were open, he saw the horses and chariots of fire. And he saw the greatest spiritual reality. And that was all about standing firm because you see what God is actually doing. But we're going to be looking at this passage because it was always with the intention that we'd come back to Ephesians 6 and spend some time in it this term. And so that's what we're going to be doing, uh, looking at various bits of it, unpacking it, looking at the armour in, in a bit of detail as we embark on this series, Battle Ready. Um, now the book of Ephesians, so this is in part of a letter to the Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul. The, the book of Ephesians itself just paints a beautiful and sublime picture of... Um, what God has done through Jesus. If you've never read through Ephesians, I'd encourage you, go to it, read it. It's six chapters, it doesn't, but read through it because it's full of these amazing promises and descriptions of what God has done through Jesus. It talks about all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. It talks about who we are in Christ. It talks about this one new man who now has access to the Father. It talks about unity, living in unity and the beauty of that. It talks about how to live as children of light. It's, it's really about how someone, how life should be for someone who has received new life in Christ. But of course, life isn't always like that, is it? You know, our, our lives don't always seem to match up with what we read. Why is that? Well, the clue is in, in that passage we just read, the language of that passage, because all the language is language of warfare. It's about being ready and equipped for the battle. And that's the point I really want us to get, is that as a Christian, you are in a battle. Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you are in a battle. From the day you were born again, you entered into a battle. Now, what is the nature of that battle? Well, verse 12 tells us, it says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against these powers of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that evil doesn't take flesh and blood form. Of course it does. We know it does. We see it all the time. But what it means is that ultimately, there's something else behind it. There's something else behind the evil that we see in the world and the evil that we see in ourselves, and, and in all of its various forms, there's something behind it that is more than merely human and natural. And to be honest, you know, if you think about it, that, that's obvious. It makes sense, because you just have to look at the success rate of human attempts to overcome the problem of evil. We're not very good at it. We, 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 we never have overcome the problem of evil. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul who writes this, is very clear. He identifies very clearly we have an enemy, which is why we're in a battle, because we have an enemy. So we're in this battle, and he talks about taking your stand against the devil's schemes. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now I know, of course, that in our culture, here in the UK, and in many Western cultures, um, most people would scoff at the idea of believing in a devil and demons, by the way, the majority of cultures in the world would not have an issue with that at all. So let's just be careful we don't look at things through our own very narrow 
lens. Most cultures would not have an issue with believing in forces of evil, in, in spiritual darkness, in, in, in a devil and demons. But in our culture, people have a problem with that. But the Bible is very clear. And I can't see any other explanation being put forward for the problem of evil. The Bible is very clear. We have a supernatural enemy, that there is an explanation for the evil that is in the world. Now, when he talks about the devil, um, of course, Paul, we know he's not talking about a little cartoon figure with, you know, with horns and a pitchfork and you know, someone who just tries to get you to do naughty things like eat too much cake. Right? We know we're not talking about that, right? No, he is talking about a very real and a very strong supernatural enemy. The Bible describes him as being like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. This is a strong enemy, and this is an enemy who wants to knock you down if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, that's where he wants to keep you. That's the state he wants to keep you in. But if you are in Christ, you have an enemy who wants to knock you down. You have an enemy who wants you to be discouraged and despondent. That's where he wants you. He wants you to be worried and anxious. He wants you to pursue selfish, self-centered, worldly desires. He wants you to doubt. He wants to lead you into doubt. Doubt your salvation. Doubt that God even exists. Doubt that God could possibly love someone like you. He wants you to rely on your own strength. He wants to lead you into temptation. And he will do everything he can to achieve all of that. He hates God. And because you love God and you belong to God, he hates you. And he does not want you living in the joy of your salvation. Please note, he cannot rob you of your salvation. Praise God. He cannot take that away from you. He doesn't have that power. He cannot take away your salvation. But he does want to and often is successful at robbing us of the joy of our salvation and living in the power of God's spirit. Why does he want to do that? Well, because he knows that Christians who live like that are a threat to him because Christians who live like that take territory from him. Because when you have Christians living in the joy of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit, people get saved around them and they get taken from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. That is exactly what the enemy does not want. Christians who live like that, full of the power of God, full of the joy and the peace of the Lord in every circumstance of life, remind that enemy that he has been defeated, utterly defeated at the cross. And people who live like that demonstrate that fact to the world. The world can see that there is victory in Christ. He does not want you living like that. Paul is very clear. We have an enemy. He's very real. He's very strong. And he is very much against you. Now, a couple of traps we need to avoid here. This is uh, C.S. Lewis. If you ever read the book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, I won't go into it now, but he basically says in that, we, you know, there are two equal and opposite traps we need to avoid when talking about the devil. We you know, mustn't get into overestimating him and you know, get in an unhealthy obsession, but equally mustn't underestimate and pretend he doesn't exist. You know, so don't overestimate his power. And superstitiously almost, you know, see the devil behind every, every circumstance, every bad thing that happens in life. Because, of course, we all know there can be many different contributing factors to things that happen. The bad things that happen to us, the things that we suffer, the challenges we face in life. There can be loads of different things that contribute to it. And actually, I think the battle is not so much about those circumstances, it's how we respond to circumstances. 
It's what happens in our minds and in our hearts as a result of circumstances we face. It's, it's about the things that we start to believe about God or the things we start to believe about ourselves as a result of circumstances that we face, which is why last week I spoke about how we deal with disappointment. Because you know, if we don't deal well with disappointment, that very real disappointment and that very real pain that result from circumstances can give the enemy a foothold in your life and give him influence, a place to speak into your life. So don't overestimate his power, but equally don't fall into the trap of underestimating his power and influence. You know, he loves it that we live in a culture and a society that would scoff at the idea, very idea of him. Because that means that as Christians, we can slip into that thought of not really believing that, that, this, is, that this is real. Don't underestimate his power and his influence. We see his influence everywhere. We see his influence in the world. You know, the attitudes, the values of this world that are utterly opposed to God's values. And I'm sure we can all think of many examples of that. And also the huge pressure that we're under to conform to those values and those attitudes. I'm sure we've all experienced that. We see his influence in the world. We see his influence in ourselves. What the Bible calls the flesh. Our old sinful nature. The sinful desires that tempt us of you know, I don't know, laziness, lustfulness, selfishness, self-reliance. Old patterns of thinking that come in to, to kind of tempt us. See, this is the thing about the devil. He is a liar. That is how he's primarily categorized. called the father of lies. He is primarily categorized as a liar. And his lies come in two main categories. There's temptation and then there's accusation. Temptation and accusation. So he will seek to tempt you to sin he'll seek to tempt you to live outside of God's will to sin in many many different ways and he knows your weak spots he knows where you're vulnerable don't underestimate him so there are loads of different ways he tempts us but but let me just give a few examples and you may recognize some of these in your own in your own life so one way he tempts us he'll tempt you to fixate on the short-term pleasure of something and then try to hide the long-term misery of what will happen as a result if you fall for that, if you do that. It's a bit like the bait that hides the hook for the fish. You know, there's this juicy bit of bait, and it hides the death and destruction that that is going to bring to that fish. It was the same for us. You know, how many lives have been destroyed by somebody falling for that lie and not really realising the long-term destruction and misery that's going to be caused by by that action. So the bait and the hook. Another way, he'll tempt you by rationalizing sin as virtue. So, you know, I'm not greedy, I'm not stingy, I'm just careful with my money. I'm thrifty. Or I'm not nosy, I'm just concerned. I'm not a gossip, I just want to let people know for their prayers. Hmm? I'm, I've not got a problem with alcohol, I'm just, I'm just sociable. So disguising sin as virtue, that's another way he'll tempt you. Another way, um, he'll tempt you through making you bitter over suffering. Look at what I've gone through. Look at what I've suffered. Surely I deserve a break. He'll tempt you through highlighting how so many sinners, so many bad people, seem to be living great lives. And so you get to the point of thinking, well, I might as well, I might as well just do it because... Playing by God's way doesn't, doesn't seem to pay off. And I see all these people who seem to be thriving and happy in their lives. Final one, he'll tempt you by getting you to compare one part of your life to another. Like, I, I do all this really good stuff, you know, so surely it's okay for me to indulge a little bit here. 
You know, I heard Tim Keller speaking on this. He likens that one to mafia hitmen. You know, I'm good to my mother, so I can kill people. Okay? Uh, maybe a little bit extreme, but you, you, you get the idea. So he tempts us, the devil tempts us, the enemy tempts us to sin, to go outside of God's will for our lives. But no sooner has he tempted you, and then maybe you've fallen for it, and straight away, what comes? Accusation. He'll accuse you. He'll try to crush you under a weight of guilt and condemnation. So again, a few ways in which he accuses us, and there are many others, but here we go. He'll accuse you by getting you to focus more on your sin than on your saviour. He'll say, look at what you did. What sort of a Christian are you? You Look at what you've done. And he'll try to get you to forget the fact you have a saviour who has rescued you from this. He'll try to get you to focus more on your sin than your saviour. He'll accuse you by bringing up past sins that have caused damage to others and that you really need to feel guilty about that forever to make up for it and actually you couldn't possibly be forgiven for that. He'll accuse you by making you think that the troubles you're going through must be the punishment of God. He must be really angry with you. He'll accuse you through making you think that the inner struggles and feelings that you're dealing with are things that Christians really shouldn't have. You know, if I were a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts and these desires and these, and these struggles. The enemy is a liar. He is a liar, but he knows you. He knows what buttons to push. He knows what strings to pull. So we need to be aware of his schemes and his strategies. What Paul is telling us, be aware of his schemes. And be aware of his schemes for ourselves. The, the, the areas where we are vulnerable, the areas where we know, actually, that is an area of weakness. That's an area of vulnerability. So you can recognize the attack when it comes. You know, being aware of the enemy's schemes really does help us to fight the battle. In any battle, if you know what the enemy's doing, that really helps in the fight. But how battle-ready are we, really? How battle-ready are we? The passage we're looking at in Ephesians 6 across this term is all about how God has equipped us with everything we need. There's nothing more for him to give us. He's given us everything that we need for this battle, to be able to stand firm in this battle. But, you know, armour doesn't do you an awful lot of good if you're not wearing it. You know, if your armour is on the floor over here, well, God's still given it to us, but you've got to put it on to be ready for the battle. If you, you won't stand firm in the battle if you're not prepared for the battle. So in World War II, um, when war was declared, there was a period of about eight months which was called, known as the Phony War. And the reason it was known as the Phony War is because war was declared, but then nothing much seemed to happen. Now that had a couple of effects. One was positive because it meant the Allies were able to equip and prepare in that time. But for the ordinary person, just living you know, in, in Britain or in, in, in other countries, for the ordinary person, they were lulled into a false sense of security. They were lulled into having a peacetime mentality in a time, what was a time of war. Of course, that changed once the bombs started to fall. But for a period of time, there was a false sense of security. We can easily, we can easily adopt a peacetime mentality in the spiritual battle. And particularly, I'd say, if life has been relatively comfortable. And I would say, yes, people here have been through very, very difficult struggles and I'm not dismissing that, but I would say as a, general, a generality in the UK, we've, most of us have lived fairly comfortable lives. Yeah? We've been through time of prosperity and all this kind of stuff. So you know, if your life has been relatively comfortable, it means that we're not prepared for when the bombs actually start to drop, when we face difficulties, when we face opposition. We can very easily lack resilience. So what would that look like? What would a peacetime mentality look like in our 
lies. Well, here are some possible indicators. So with a peacetime mentality, prayer is like a domestic intercom for communicating what we want. Rather than a battlefront walkie-talkie to communicate what is absolutely needed right now. How is your prayer life? What would it say about your mentality? With a peacetime mentality, reading the Bible, reading God's word is something that we kind of think we should do that. And we might do it sometimes. But rather than it being a vital source of food and nourishment and strength. Because in battle, you take all the nourishment and strength that you can get whenever you can get it. So how's your Bible reading? Are you in the word of God? With a peacetime mentality, Christians only meet together to pray in official church meetings. And let's face it, they're not always the best attended either. Rather than meeting at any opportunity in and out of each other's homes to pray. If prayer is an essential weapon in the battle, which it is because it's in this passage and we're going to come to it later in the term... Well, then we should be praying more. We should be doing it at every opportunity together, not just in official settings. With a peacetime mentality, you give out of what is left over after you've met all of your needs. In war, resources are tight. You give first to the mission and then you scrabble around for what you need. How is your giving? Is the mission a priority or does God get your leftovers? Final one. In a, with a peacetime mentality, you plan your day and your week around what are frankly unimportant, temporary, fleeting things. TV, Netflix, social media, disproportionate amounts of time spent on those things. You don't do that in wartime because your priorities shift and you find there really are more important things to give your time and your focus to. Now, full disclosure, every single one of those points is a huge challenge for me. I'm not standing here as someone who's got this cracked at all. They are first of all addressed to myself. But if we have a peacetime mentality, then when the battle intensifies and when the foundations, our foundations get shaken and tested, as I think they have been and are being, when we face challenging circumstances and the enemy tries to come in and sow his lies into our thinking, we are going to struggle to not fall for them if we have a peacetime mentality. We're going to struggle to not fall for his lies and then be rendered ineffective for Christ. And that is where the enemy wants you. He wants you ineffective. For Christ, And I think many Christians experienced something of that in the lockdowns, when the lockdowns came along. Because we were not prepared, we were lacking godly resilience, and it really impacted many, many people. Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus, and by extension writing to us as soldiers. He's writing to us as soldiers, not to glorify warfare... But to say that's the kind of attitude you've got to have. Because as soldiers, don't be surprised at warfare. Don't be surprised when warfare comes along. Don't be surprised by trials and difficulties and battles. They will come. You know, don't be surprised by them. I like the illustration that Simon Holly often uses of um, asking, you know, when you were born, when you became a Christian, when you were born again, were you born onto a battleship or onto a cruise ship? Were you born onto a battleship or a cruise ship? If you think you were born onto a cruise ship, you know, that's the message that you were sold, that the Christian life is meant to be you know, wonderful, holiday, you know, everything's great, everything's wonderful all the time. Well, when you come under attack and the bombs start dropping in the swimming pool, you are going to be outraged. You're going to be saying, well, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, nobody told me about this. Nobody told me that, that, that life is still quite difficult as a Christian. I didn't sign up for this. And you're going to be hammering on the manager's door. You're going to be banging on the captain's door to moan and complain. 
and say, what is going on? I didn't, this is not what I signed up for. But if you recognise that actually you're born onto a battleship, then there is no surprise when attack comes. You enjoy the peerage when there isn't, but there's no surprise when attack comes. You are prepared for it. It's part of life on a battleship. Christians, we've all been born onto a battleship. You are in a battle, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you're in a battle. We will all face trials and difficulties in our lives, and that's not to minimise any of them. That's not to minimise things that you may be going through. I'm not saying they're not hard, but don't be surprised by them. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you are tempted by repeated sin. You know, if there's habitual sin in your life and you, it's, just, it's just really difficult to break it and you're constantly tempted. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised when you have dark days, when you just feel down and despondent and depressed and you're battling condemnation. Don't be surprised. You have an enemy working against you. Don't be surprised by the battle and don't be frightened of the battle either. You know, it was fear that kept Israel out of the promised land, even though they knew they had God on their side. It was fear. And I think fear has been such a feature in so many Christians' lives over the last two or three years. We so easily get gripped by fear and despondency, and we throw in the towel, feel like God has abandoned us, we get all negative about stuff, and I don't think I've got what it takes to live this Christian life. You know, that is a great weapon of the enemy, inadequate a soldier. You know, you see those movies like Braveheart, uh, or you know, Lord of the Rings, where Aragorn is rallying the troops as they're at the gates of Mordor, and you know those kind of things, where there's this stirring speech and this rallying cry on the front line. Why? Because you can't have these soldiers going to battle thinking that they're going to be defeated. You just can't have that. They need to believe that they can overcome the enemy. Verse ten in Ephesians six is like Paul's rallying cry: "Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty." power be strong in the lord and in his mighty power paul says this he delivers this line even before talking about the weaponry and the armor that you need and that god has provided for the battle he says be strong be strong it's like an attitude or a mindset that we need to have even before getting into the battle so that's where i want to focus for the rest of my time today we're going to be covering the armor in 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 future weeks but he says be strong now what is he saying is paul saying look pull yourselves together you know Man up, think positive thoughts, everything will be okay. Is that what he's saying? Is he telling us to make ourselves strong? No, he's not saying that. He says, be strong, be strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty power. Because the reality is, humanly speaking, we are not strong enough for this enemy. We're not. I have discovered on many occasions over the last couple of years that my own strength and my own competence run out very, very quickly. And when I try to fight battles in my own strength I get exhausted and depleted very quickly humanly speaking we are not strong enough for this enemy we're not strong enough for this battle but we have God on our side he is on our side and he strengthens us through his spirit he strengthens us through the power and the truth of the gospel and really knowing the gospel really knowing it, really receiving it. We need to constantly be reminding ourselves of just who he is, who it is who is on our side, and also who we are in him. And to do that, we need to be intentional. So Psalm 46 says, Be still and know that I am God. Interesting, isn't it? He says, be still first. Be still. You need to be still to know this. Be still, know that I am God. Now, how many opportunities do we give ourselves to be still? With God, you know, just to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary did. Why we did that series last summer, 
the Sit at His Feet series, because we're not very good at this. Because we make ourselves busy, we surround ourselves with noise, but sometimes God is just saying, stop. Just stop. Be still, because I want to speak to you. I've got things I need to tell you. Be still. Know that I am God. Know who I am. And not just know it in your head, but to let God really plant it deep in our heart, deep in our spirit, who he is. That, that, so that you can really know that the creator of the universe, the almighty God, really is on your side. That you are on the winning team. That, you know, that makes the battle a lot easier if you know you're on the winning team. You know, if you're going out for the match and you look to your right or to your left and you see Jesus coming out with you, you think, yes, we've won. We've already won. Well, that's what it is. That's what's happening. You are on the winning team. It's like when David fought Goliath. You know, the Israelite armies are looking at this giant in, in the light of their own smallness and their weakness and their vulnerability. David, though, sees it differently. He sees this giant in the context of his God, who is mighty and powerful. And he knows God is on his side. And he takes this giant on and he defeats him. You know, take time to stop and know that he is God. Take time to stop and know that he is committed to you. And that will never change. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't abandon you. He is committed to you. He takes great delight in you. He loves you with a burning passion. And that he is enough for you. It's different knowing that in our heads from knowing it really deep down and we need to know it deep down be still and know that I am God make time to hear him speak be intentional about it because when God speaks we are strengthened when we spend time in his presence we are strengthened that's what Paul himself experienced he experienced this strength he writes in 2 Corinthians about this thorn in the flesh that he has and we're not sure exactly what that was there are different possibilities but it was something that was causing him a lot of grief a lot of pain a lot of distress this thorn in the flesh. And it says three times he cries out to God for it to be taken away. So Paul, the apostle Paul, you know, man of prayer, crying out to God for him to change whatever this situation is. Please God, change this. Take this thing away. Does God do that? No. No. But God does speak to Paul. Paul hears him. And Paul, uh, God says this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And for Paul, that's enough. That's what he needs. He hears God speak. He sees things from God's perspective because he knows him. In his letter to the Philippians, which was written with him, in, he was written from prison. Paul was in prison as he wrote that letter. And then he uses this line where he says, you know, he's learned the secret of being content in every situation. He's writing this in prison. He's learned the secret of being content in every situation. How? Through him who gives me strength. That's how. It's through the God who strengthens me, through him who gives me strength. You know, Paul faced plenty of very difficult, bad situations in his life, but he knew God and he knew God's strength. So this is not about pulling yourself together and stoically facing up to the challenges of life in your own strength. No, this is about God saying, I love you. I love you. I called you. I chose you. So I will strengthen you. Why would you think I wouldn't? I will strengthen you. Come to me, know me, know who is on your side. Know the truth. So we need to know who he is. But we also need to know who we are in him, who he's made us to be. So in Isaiah 52, God is speaking to Israel and he says, Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor. Shake off the dust. Rise up. 
Sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck. God is telling Israel, recognize who you are. You are the people of God. Awake, rise up, know who you are. Now Paul is writing here to the saints in Ephesus. To the saints. Christians are labelled as saints. Because you have a new identity. God-given. You are new creations. You were once walking in darkness and you were darkness. And now you walk in the light and you are light. You've, you've been brought near to God. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You are an adopted son or daughter of the king. That is who you are. That is who you are. That is your identity. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. So many Christians don't grasp it. So many Christians still see themselves as just hopeless Sinners, And yes, we do still sin, but that is not who you are. That is no longer your identity. If you are born again, you are a new creation. God sees you as a saint, not a sinner. He sees the righteousness of Christ on you. He sees the strength of Christ on you. Recognize, remember who you are. Awake, rise up. You are the people of God. You were darkness, now you are light. Praise God. Praise God. It's true. Believe it. Believe who you are. That is the gospel. That's the gospel. And the gospel really is the defense that we have. That's the defense against the lies of the enemy. As we'll see through all of this series, all of the armor of God really is about the gospel. It all comes back to the gospel. The gospel is the armor. And so if you really believe the gospel, if you really do believe it deep down, that Jesus died on the cross as your substitute, that he took the penalty for your sin so that all of your guilt, every single bit of your sin and your guilt was put on him and absorbed by him and in turn all of his righteousness is put on you and you have been raised to new life with him and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to live a righteous life. If you really believe that, that's your defense against the lies of the enemy. That is your defense. That is the armor. Because, you know, when he tempts you to sin, when the enemy tempts you to sin, you know that that sin is what Jesus was nailed to a cross for. Why would I want to go anywhere near it? And we don't succeed at that all the time, do we? But if we really have this in mind, if we really know the gospel and we are tempted to sin, we look at that sin and think that was what nailed Jesus to the cross. Why would I want anything to do with that? And when he tries to accuse you and crush you with guilt and with condemnation, you can say, be quiet. You be quiet because I'm on Jesus' side. And you know, he took all of my guilt. He took all of my sin. He took all of my shame. He gave me his righteousness. And I know I am so loved. I'm so accepted. The cross is the guarantee of it. You know, you don't die for somebody you don't love. I can, never, I can never think that Jesus doesn't love me because of, because of the cross. You can say to the enemy, no, I am loved and accepted. I'm filled with the righteousness of Christ. So you can be quiet when you try to accuse me of sin and you try to condemn me. No, no, no. Be quiet. I belong to Jesus. You know, knowing that, knowing, receiving, believing the gospel exposes the lies of Satan for what they really are. And it demolishes his strategies in our lives demolishes them as Shay said earlier the battle is the Lord's the battle is the Lord's and up against him the enemy has no chance truth is Jesus has overcome 
Jesus has overcome the enemy. The lamb has overcome. So when he speaks, when Jesus speaks, what he says happens. Because his words are filled with power. So when he invites you and me to stand in the battle and to be strong in the Lord, it's because he will strengthen you. He will. There's no doubt about it. He will strengthen you, but you have to stand. You have to make a move. You have to do something. You have to stand putting your trust in Jesus. You know, when Jesus healed the lame man and said, look, pick up your mat and stand up, walk. Well, the lame man had to, he had to put his trust in Jesus. I don't know exactly what moment that healing happened, whether he felt strength in his legs and so, or whether it was as he stood, I don't know. But he had to stand. And he had to take a step of faith because he could have looked, if, if that healing hadn't actually happened, he could have looked pretty silly trying to stand up and people would have probably mocked him but he did stand because Jesus said it because Jesus told him to stand he stood and he was healed as he did it when Joshua was leading the Israelites across the Jordan you know God told them to cross he told them to cross over but they had to step into the river first the river didn't stop and then it's like, oh great, God's done that, now we can move it. No, no, they had to believe God and they had to step into the flowing river before it stopped. They took a step of faith because God had said it and they believed him. They moved in response to God. When Peter walked on the water, he said to Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come. And Jesus said, come. And because it was Jesus who said it, Peter stepped out of the boat and he walked on the water because he believed there was power in Jesus saying it. There was power in Jesus' words, and he took a step of faith. He stepped into it. So I don't know what God is saying to you. He might not be saying anything in particular. He might be saying some very particular things. I don't know. But when he speaks, he means it, and he'll give you the strength to do whatever it is. You know, when Jesus says to you, follow me, stop doing that, and follow me. Stop looking at that stuff on the internet. Stop... Uh, lying, stop getting drunk, stop uh, wasting your time on that, stop believing the lies of the enemy. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he convicts you of sin and says, stop it, follow me instead, it's not a case of, I can't, I can't, it's too hard. No, you can. You can. In his strength, but you need to take a step and believe that Jesus will strengthen you as you take that step. You know, as you take steps to follow him, and to be obedient to him, whatever that might mean to you. And obedience is crucial here, by the way. You know, this scenario of warfare, you know, obedience to the commanding officer is essential. If you, you know, do what God says. Live the way he says to live. Otherwise, you're putting yourself on the back foot straight away. We need to be obedient to what he says. But if you take steps of obedience to him, whatever that might mean for you, he will strengthen you. He will strengthen you. Maybe God is calling you to something that requires a step of faith. He's calling you to do something, and it requires a step of faith. But the battle for you is fear. Fear, inadequacy. You don't feel very strong, but the command is not to feel strong. The command is to be strong, trusting that God will strengthen you. To step into the strength that he provides, that only he can provide, and the strength that he promises. So be strong. Be strong. In yourself? No. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So I just want us to have a chance now, really, for God to speak. For us to reflect a little bit, give him time to speak. There may be things that he really wants to speak, speak to you about, to be still and know that he is God. So we're just going to have a few moments now. Uh, the band are going to come up. Um, but I just invite all of us to close our eyes and just have a few moments just to reflect. 
and just ask him, you know, allow God to speak. Lord, is there, is there, some of you already know, some of you he's already been speaking to, but for others it might be just, Lord, is there anything that you want to point out to me? Is there anything you're calling me to stop doing? Is there anything you're calling me to start doing? Just give him a, a chance to speak.